The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Well, good morning. Hey, I got some good news for you. Only 363 days until Christmas. The countdown has begun. So don't be sad. Now, seriously, the the, um, uh, the the day after, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm too soon. Maybe many of you are just still, you know, feeling it. I don't know. Or some of you are are just like, oh. Some of you are happy that all the work is over. Some of you are kind of sad. All the anticipation, all the buildup, all of the, you know, we'll keep the decorations up for a little bit longer since we don't have to take down. But I want to consider um, one of my favorite passages this morning in light of um, life, in light of how you may be feeling in this post-Christmas blues, maybe, 1 Corinthians 10.31. But... um, Before we go there, let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful for the gift of your son. What a wonderful time of year to to focus on his birth. And yet it's also a time that's that's, uh, difficult for many. And when the anticipation builds and the celebration is done, many are left with an emptiness. So fill our hearts with joy a joy each day in knowing Jesus and anticipating his work in our lives and the promises to come. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. 1 Corinthians 10.31, brief, extremely profound, says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. John Bloom writes, Each year, Christmas night finds members of my family feeling melancholic. After weeks of anticipation, the Christmas celebrations have flashed by us and are suddenly gone. And we, we sit in the messy aftermath, watching the taillights and the music of another Christmas fade into the distance. Such melancholy is common, known as Christmas letdown. Everyone feels sad for different reasons. Younger children are sad that the excitement is over and next Christmas might as well be a decade away. Teens and young adults feel sad because as they've matured, beloved traditions have changed or the magical delight these things held not too many years ago have dulled. Adults feel a mortality sadness the older we get. We realize how few Christmases we really get. There is now one less to enjoy when our children are young or when they're still living at home or when our elderly or ill family member is still with us or when we will still, uh, when we are still with our loved ones. Or maybe the sadness was from a chair or a place at the table painfully empty this year. The truth is that this melancholic moment might be the most poignant teaching moment of the whole season. Because as long as Christmas is pregnant with anticipation, 
the beautiful gift remains unopened. Be- the beautiful gifts remain unopened, and the feasts and fun events are still ahead of us. It can appear to be the hope that we're waiting for. But when the wrapping paper lies in tatters and the events are over and the guests are gone and the retail stores are setting up for Valentine's Day, we realize that Christmas didn't deliver what we really long for, a happiness that doesn't end. And surprisingly, this is how our Christmas celebrations might actually serve us best, as pointers to not providers of lasting joy. So, I think what John Bloom's getting at is we want to be happy. We want joy, we want satisfaction, and yet we're often we we often place wrong expectations on our celebrations. And when we do, we're only setting ourselves up for maybe depression or addiction. Because, as John Bloom rightly points out, these celebrations are meant to be pointers to lasting joy, not providers of it. Only God can provide us with joy for which we long. It's not Christmas. It's not things or hobbies or events. It's not success. It's not a spouse. It's not even family. There are many gifts that make us happy, but we always find that it's never enough. And the reason this is so is because we are made in the image of God. We were made for God. And our only true and lasting satisfaction, therefore, is in God. St. Augustine said it this way, You have made us for yourself, O Lord. And our heart is restless until it rests in you. This sense of melancholy or, or Christmas letdown makes sense. It's understandable because we do anticipate the, the specific joys of the celebration. And it's not wrong. It's not wrong to look forward to the delight of your children, the, the family gatherings, the food, the, the joy in watching someone's pleasure in the gift that you've given them. These are great and wonderful things. None of it is wrong. We should look forward to such things. But as John Bloom states, this melancholic moment that we feel when it's over might be the most poignant teaching moment of the whole season. So maybe I'm a little early for some of you but I'm counting on an eventual melancholy to, uh, to cause you to wonder why. Why do I feel this way? And it's a teachable moment. Our lack of satisfaction, this continued longing that we feel, points to the greatness of God. It says, nope, that didn't do it. As good as that was, it's not enough. I want more. And it's good that we want more. Because the more that we want is God. Let this drive you to God. Let let this feeling motivate you to grow in your relationship to him. Let 
Let it be something that drives you to his word, where you spend time getting to know him, time in prayer talking to him. What this feeling teaches us is that the legitimate enjoyments of life are not meant to be it. They're not meant to be everything. They're meant to point us to God. They give us a little taste. They give us a little taste of what's to come. And so we shouldn't look back in nostalgic depression as if the best has passed us by. No, we should always be anticipating more. We should appreciate what's been given to us and view it as, a, as an appetizer or a movie trailer of a truly incredible experience to come. So I want you to stop and, stop and think about this. If, do you really think that God would give us the best now? Right now. And if so, what would that communicate? What would that say about eternity? If we enter into eternity and, and long for the good old days, wouldn't that say that we're disappointed with God? So there's a way for us to enjoy the now, a way that points us to the future. And when we feel that empty longing, we, we should remind ourselves It's not over, that this was only meant to be a taste of the joy that is to come. And I think 1 Corinthians 10.31 speaks to this. We can eat, we can drink, we can do stuff without looking beyond this. And it's just about that. Or we can enjoy a meal. And think of the one who created us with taste buds, with senses of pleasure, thinking that if this is good, if if this illustration is good, what does it say about the reality for which I'm created? Being mindful of God, being thankful and expectant of even more pleasure in him, this is glorifying to God. This draws our attention and possibly the attention of others to God's goodness in in all of these blessings of life. Expecting even more and better is glorifying to God. This is why prayer is so critical in our lives, being in the habit of, of stopping and acknowledging and and giving thanks reminds us to to eat and drink and do whatever with God in mind. But when we're in the habit of ignoring God, we rob him of his glory, the glory that he deserves, and our focus is only on the gift, only on the things that that will always leave us empty and wanting for more. We hunger and anticipate a meal. We eat it and enjoy it. We're full, and then some time goes by and we're no no longer satisfied. And we look forward to the next meal or maybe something sweet. We, We never rest in any pleasure but only look to the next. 
And those of you who are football fans, you know this feeling. Even if your team wins the national championship, are you satisfied forever? No, you long for another one. So I'm told anyway. I don't, I don't understand this experience, but um, that's what I'm told. Um, C.S. Lewis so brilliantly communicated that, that creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And the realization of this truth brings glory to God. Because instead of expecting the things of this world to satisfy us, we, yes, enjoy them and let them point us to God. To God who is our only true and lasting satisfaction. If, if football or anything becomes my life and my happiness depends upon it and I live for it and it's such a priority that I no longer go to church, well, what does that say? What does that communicate? Something that's certainly not glorifying to God. Remember, our lives should be like telescopes, telescopes that are, that are pointed to God, and when people look through, through our lives, they should see that God is the greatest, most satisfying treasure of all. But if people look through your life, which is set by your actions, and they see you prioritizing football or hobbies or travel or whatever over your faith, what does it say? It says, I believe football is better than God. And this doesn't mean that football or a lot of hobbies doesn't mean that they're sinful. There are many enjoyments of life. And simply enjoying them does not make them idols. God gives us gifts that are meant to be enjoyed. He wants us to enjoy them. He wants us to be happy in these blessings of life. And primarily, when we truly see these kinds of things as gifts and put them in their proper place and people know our thankfulness to God and that nothing else compares to him, then yes, enjoy. Yes, have a thankfulness to God. This is how we glorify God in all things. For me and uh, football, I'll always remember a great day at Autzen Stadium with my son-in-law, Jake. It was a, a, it was a ridiculously perfect day. Jake scored some incredible seats with the benefits of a of a private bathroom, free drinks, all-you-can-eat brisket lunch, seats outside, not stuck away in some, some box, but seats outside, sectioned off, covered under the roof, at a game where the Ducks ended up beating our rivals, the, 
Washington Huskies in overtime in the end zone in which we were seated. I just, I can't think of anything else I would want in this, this day. There was a point in the game when we were, we were in the shade of the roof. And as soon as I had the thought, you know, I'm getting a little bit of a chill. I watched the sun start to creep up and warm us. And I, I think in that moment, I just started to laugh and think, God, this is ridiculously good. You are, you are so good to me. So it was ultimately about the goodness of God. And so I really do understand this as one of those whatever you do's that can glorify God. And as good as that brisket was, it makes me think of something better. Chef Jeff's brisket, which makes me think, yes, I really can eat to the glory of God because I know God is behind this kind of pleasure. And it points to his goodness and the pleasures to come. And the same is true with Christmas. Presents are not sinful, but they can be. We might give or receive with all of our misplaced expectations on the present without a thought to God and his generosity and what is yet to come. I love this verse because it tells me that that life is to be enjoyed and life can be lived in a way that glorifies God. And yet, some whatever-you-do's are not meant to be done. There are choices that, that are sinful and choices of faith, denying the fleeting pleasures of sin and choosing to obey and thus glorify God. Hebrews chapter 11 is a passage that I think of describing a hard choice that Moses made. In verses 24 through 26, we read, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward, looking to something else. Are riches sinful? Is it sinful to be identified as Pharaoh's daughter? Or son? Uh, Identified as Pharaoh's daughter's son? No. It's not sinful. But in this situation it was. It was for Moses who realized that he was who his people, he realized who he was. He realized who his people were and what God had called him to do. It was clear in his mind, it's one or the other. There's no way for Moses to see Egypt as one of those whatever-you-dos that could glorify God. He had a choice, and God made it clear, you're either for me or you're against me. And this choice of Moses affected the rest of his life. It said something about his heart and what he ultimately valued. And so there was only one way to glorify God. This is a lesson of faith. By faith, Moses acted, 
And this action communicated what he believed about the things of life and what God promises is better. Faith, we read at the beginning of this chapter, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Moses was assured. He knew. He was confident that God would satisfy him more than any of these things, more than anything else. God's promises are true. They are sure. We should have no doubt whatsoever because God cannot lie. And God is all-powerful and unchanging. What he promises will occur. His promises are not like mine. I can have every intention to keep a promise of taking Jen out to dinner and a movie, and she might be very confident that this is what we're going to do, that because I said we would do it, we'll do it, and because she knows that I want to do it, that it'll happen. So my character and my desire may be a factor in Jen's confidence, but here's the problem. I'm not omnipotent. I'm not sovereign over someone hitting me with their car and putting me in the hospital. I'm not immutable. I'm not the same yesterday, today, and forever. If I change because I catch a cold and I'm sick in bed, it's not a matter of my character or my desire. It's a matter of my finite nature. People can make promises to you. And you can and should have some level of confidence in them, but they're not God. And so it's one thing to be assured in people, but another to be assured in God. Faith is, wow, faith is something that's typically given all sorts of wrong definitions. Faith is not believing in the impossible. It's not believing in what makes no sense to us. No, faith is believing that it's impossible for God to fail in keeping his promises to us. Faith believes he will do what he said because of him. Instead of an irrational belief in the impossible, faith is very rational. It it makes perfect sense that the one who spoke everything into existence who is now in covenant with you because of Jesus and promises you everlasting life, a day with no more tears, no more sorrows, no more pain and death, a day when you won't feel this post-Christmas melancholy because the reality has come. If you have no doubt of this, because God is the one who promised you, that's faith. That makes sense. And our assurance is not only in in some eventual day when Jesus comes again and makes all things right. No, we're assured of all things right now and that they are under God's sovereign control and purposefully meant for our good. And we know, and we know, we know We have faith. We are fully confident and assured in this because God is God and nothing can prevent him from doing what he promises. We know. 
We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This promise is yours if you belong to Jesus, if you love God. And if you love God, you should know that it's because God chose to love you. And then you read on verses 29 and 30, not only God choosing to love you, but to predestine you to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And so God also calls you to himself, and he justifies you, and he glorifies you. Faith sees that even though we are not yet glorified, God's promise to us in verse 30 is it's so certain, he doesn't say that he will glorify you, but that he glorified, he has glorified you. It's as, it's as good as done. We're not only assured of the future, but because of the promise of God, we should be assured of all things, every circumstance, and that in, in some way, in his, in his higher, greater ways, it's better for us. It's perfect. It's intended for good. And your good ultimately has to do with your joy and satisfaction. All things are pointing to this, leading to this. Being conformed into the image of Jesus is a matter of your joy. It's a matter of your satisfaction. So if you're in rebellion of that, thinking that you're pursuing joy and satisfaction, you have it wrong. We may not understand it now, but we will. And the one who created joy and pleasure, if he says that it's worth it, it makes sense that we should believe it. So think of the faith. Think of the absolute confidence that you can have, not just in an eventual good outcome of heaven, but all throughout life and the sufferings that you experience. You can go through them, and and even though you're greatly pained by them, you can simultaneously not be crushed. You can be absolutely sure that the most reliable one you'll ever know has promised and is at work. This is the faith of Moses, faith that looked to God for a satisfaction that would not fade. And his choice was clear. It was either the immediate gratification of earthly pleasures, or it was an identification with God that would, yes, lead to suffering, but a suffering that would lead to a pleasure that Egypt couldn't come close to matching. Egypt is that earthly pleasure that so many people look to and believe will bring satisfaction. But, but like Christmas letdowns, nothing can truly satisfy us but God. Our Christmas celebrations, they're not the problem. They're not meant to satisfy us. And if we expect them to, then we need to lift our eyes from the gift to the giver. Our reward, our satisfaction is only realized in Christ. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, have a right expectation of these gifts and look with with thankful hearts to the giver for your satisfaction. And in doing so, this glorifies God. This is a joyful thing. 
All of this is related to what you may be feeling on this day after Christmas. So let me leave you with a a few practical applications given by John Bloom. He went on to write, If we can see Christmas as a foreshadowing of future lasting joy and not an attempt to fulfill our dreams, we can unburden it from unrealistic expectations and transpose the melancholy of its passing into hope. It might help to give this some thought before the sad mood sets in so you can serve your loved ones when it hits them. And here are a few ways I've tried to make post-Christmas melancholy point to hope for our kids. First, gifts and events can't fill the soul. God gives us such things to enjoy. They are expressions of his generosity as well as ours, but gifts and celebrations themselves are not designed to satisfy. They're designed to point us to the giver. Gifts are like sunbeams. We are not meant to love sunbeams, but the sun. Love that illustration. Gifts are like sunbeams. They're not, we're meant to love we're not meant to love the sunbeams, but the sun. And we know this is this in our, in our own giving. You want people to enjoy your gift, but your gift is an expression of your love. And so it's not meant to replace you, but to enhance your relationship. A second point that John makes is putting our hope in passing joys will leave us empty. Don't put your hope there. Let them point to your real hope. He says, many people live their lives looking for the right sunbeam to make them happy. But if we depend on anything in the world to satisfy our soul's deepest desire, it will eventually leave us with that post-Christmas soul ache. We will ask, is that all? Because we know deep down, that's not all there is. We are designed to treasure a person not his things. Get back, it gets back to our design, doesn't it? Life is a gift. The people in your life are gifts. We should enjoy them. But they ultimately point to the giver, the one who alone brings satisfaction, that satisfaction for which you long. Third, it's more blessed to give than receive. What kind of happiness makes Christmas feel richer, getting the presents that you wanted or making someone else happy with something that you gave to them. Receiving is a blessing, yes, but Jesus is right. Giving is a greater blessing. A greedy soul lives in a small, lonely world. A generous soul lives in a wide world of love. That is what heaven and the new earth will be like. And here's a bonus recommendation from Pastor Brian. Humbly talk about these truths. Talk about it. If you've failed in these things, confess them to your children. Confess them to your friends. Have a discussion for the sake of of change. It's just like God, really, isn't it, to, to let the glitter and flash of our celebrations to pass. 
and then to come to us in the quiet, even melancholic void that they leave. Because often that's when we're most likely to understand the hope he intends for us to have at Christmas. Let's pray. Father, what a gift you've given to us. These celebrations, they're wonderful. It's a wonderful time of year. You are worthy of our expressions of joy. And yet, we also recognize various hurts, sorrows, and I pray that the reality of your promises, the reality of of who you are, will lead to a stronger faith, a faith that can rejoice in the midst of sorrow, a faith that enjoys and sees your various gifts as pointing to you, a faith that, that hopes in you and looks to you for our satisfaction. Thank you for your many blessings. Thank you for this Lord's Day and this opportunity for us to be together as a church family, to sing, to fellowship, to consider your word. We give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.